Hello and welcome to They Just Get It. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm, and I'm excited, as I always am accused of being, for having my guest on today, Mr. Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Bastian. How are you, uh, How are you, doctor? <laughs> I'm well, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Oh, so good to have you on. We met through, again, it's Calgary's One Degree of Separation. You work at Eon Future Health, uh, which is owned by my good friend, Lisa Krasuski, who I've also had on the show multiple times, or I'm thinking, I've had her on once and we're going to have, a, her and I are going to do a show again in the fall, but you and I met through my experience at Eon and through the, your health practice and had a really positive experience and I've seen you present a couple times and was excited to have you on the show because the rabbit hole of per, the personal health journey that many of us are on now, the just evolution of the medical system that we all live in here in, in Canada, which we're privileged to have access to, but also sometimes maybe doesn't give us all what we're looking for. And then there's this crazy world of biohacking as everyone is looking for to fine tune the machine. So to have you on today, I don't like that. That was just three broad pillars of, of where we could go. So I'm going to turn it over to you and give us a little bit. How long have you been? Uh, give us a little bit. What are your creds? How long you've been practicing, and then let's just open up the conversation from there. Yeah, sounds good, man. Sounds great. So, um, graduated from UFC, finished family medicine, and spent the first four or five years of practice doing inpatient care. So, uh, in hospital, sort of internal medicine style care, uh, which was amazing for sort of understanding all of these complex problems that um, just sort of plague our population as a whole. And then, you know, from there, transitioned to urgent care. So that's where I still work today, sort of Sheldon Schumer Urgent Care, Cochrane Urgent Care, doing acute care medicine. So, okay. you know, that's really urgent care emerged somewhere in that realm, um, which has been awesome. Like the the medicine, the the sort of impact that you can have on someone when they're when they're coming through and, and they initially have a like a concern being able to address that and quickly execute on it's been great but and those are and those are people in the emergency those are high need states like i'm coming oh, yeah. in and some, i'm here I, i've spent my day sitting here in this emerge which is another that's another topic because something is wrong i'm scared i'm in a place of fear i i'm not in a good place with myself yeah totally absolutely and it, it's it's wonderful medicine and it's it's amazing to be able to help people in that moment but i think you know over time you you get it, it can be tiring always being on the reactive side of that care model right and so maybe about three years ago i started sort of looking for some different opportunities reflecting a bit back on on what um, the urgent care was doing really effectively and perhaps what some of our medical system was missing um, and then started sort of looking for some different avenues where I might be able to have uh, more of an impact on the preventative proactive side. Okay, So, you know, I, I kind of started looking at some different private family clinics and, and I think there's lots of benefit to that. But the truth is, is really you're, you're still practicing standard family medicine just with better access and sort of okay. you know what why that which isn't really where my where my head was going and so as i was reaching out to my network trying to look for something that was more on the preventative side um i connected with lisa who you know owns and, and founded eon um and at that time they had some really interesting technologies. They were doing some interesting things on the preventative biohacking space, um, but they didn't necessarily have a like a, a great way to integrate that with conventional medicine. And I think that's really sort of what kicked off this whole this whole 
sort of path down biohacking and preventative care. And for anyone listening, you, you did tell me earlier, this is your first podcast, but you laid that out incredibly well. You were almost like a seasoned professional podcaster, if I didn't know better. <laughs> ah, thanks. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. Thank you. Please do. A hundred percent. I was really well positioned to let the audience know kind of where you came from. Just touching a little bit, I don't want to spend too much time camping out on this, but when you were doing your schooling, when you were working your way through that long and, and all the work and time that went into that, how much of the conversation in your education was around preventative and proactive side of healthcare versus these are the things that are going to show up to you and you're going to have to treat them or respond to. And just really understanding the balance of the framework. Cause you got this on your, you, you came to this through your own, like, I want to do more. This isn't resonating with me. I'm just curious from the education perspective, where's the, does the foundation lean more towards the triage than it does to this preventative proactive side? You know, I, I mean, certainly when I went through, there was very little on preventative and proactive care. Right. I mean, it's it was sort of a an afterthought of of the system and structure of medicine. And, you know, frankly, even coming from conventional care within acute care within the emergency, transitioning to the more preventative aspect um, was incredibly eye opening in terms of how medicine is is structured. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So let me let me just elaborate on that. So. Um, you know, when we think about conventional medicine and we think about like, what is it rooted in? Well, it's rooted in the scientific method, right? It's rooted in the pinnacle of that is like the double blinded placebo trial, right? And you, you want that if, if you're coming into the emerge and you've got like, um, you've got a heart attack. You don't want someone like being wishy-washy about your care. Like you want someone who's like, look, the evidence suggests we treat with aspirin and Plavix and then we ship them off to the CCU to get a coronary angiography right away. And you want, you want that like in series, right? But the trouble with, with the double-blinded placebo trial is like it, big pharma has a tendency to fund those. They have like five years to um, gather enough data they, you know, they usually have about a five-year spending time frame to gather enough data to actually like put forth their product and get it approved by the FDA and then Health Canada. So they always end up taking patients who are um, sicker, right, who maybe already have heart disease. Um, let's use that as an example. Um, and then as opposed to somebody on the preventative side where you're going to take a healthy person, Right. If you give a medication to someone someone who's sicker, you're more likely to see benefit in that five-year time horizon. Okay, right? And so, if you extrapolate that, it's like all of the data that we build through this double-blinded placebo trial almost exclusively ends up being on patients who have already got a disease and then have watched that progress, as opposed to um, the preventative component. So the things that we learn in med school, which are based on that double-blinded placebo piece, um, and that, you know, very rigorous evidence-based medicine almost always end up focusing on the treatment of disease as opposed to the prevention. Which makes, I really thank you for laying out because follow the model, right? Follow the money, follow the structure, follow what we're measuring, what gets measured, gets done. You're dealing with individuals that are already in a compromised place with their health. How do we get them back from there? Not how do we not get them there from going there in the first place? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, it, and it, that, thank you. And, and that that colors it colors medicine. It colors like the um, 
the committees that then take that data, that then create guidelines for family physicians to follow. So all of the things, like if you look at that and you look at it really on a very meta, high-level thing, I mean, that that is, it's critical data. It's very important. It helps to make us the most, provide us the detail to make the most evidence-informed decisions we can. But it's almost always then focused on reactive care as opposed to preventative. And I don't want to sound trite when I say this, but we're trying to help the we're helping the people that need the help, not stopping them from ever needing the help in the first place. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a whole lot of layers of big pharma. We can go down and put on our our tinfoil hats and have that conspiracy conversation. But as I joked earlier, we're not having a Joe Rogan podcast. We're going to leave we'll leave that off <laughs> yeah. the table for today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's lots of those out there if you want to go down that that podcast uh, rabbit hole. But I really appreciate the context and understanding like what is the framework and what are the mechanisms that lead to us more focusing on this versus that. So for you, was this a bit of a um, a crisis of conscience or a crisis of like, I don't want to always be in the reactive side. I want to actually, like, I'm assuming as a medical professional, not some people are very quite, probably quite comfortable working in that triage, working in that side. Was this just part of your own journey? And like, uh, you know what? I, I think I can have a bigger impact over here. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I wouldn't say, I, I think crisis of conscience is is <laughs> extreme. And, and I say okay. that because, like, I had, I love urgent care. I love the medicine. I love the right. structure. I appreciate that. And and I also see all of the benefit that initiating those therapies, when you do, have on patients down the pipeline. Um, but I was definitely getting the sense, you know, you see the same issues come through and through, uh, high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, stroke, stuff that, by and large, can be preventable or at least substantially risk mitigated with proper therapy. You, you can get you can, you can get ahead of it. Yeah, you can get ahead of it. And, which we're which we're going to get into today. For totally. Sure. And 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 so so I was just like every day you see the same things come through and I think it it um it can wear on you a bit. And and then I think yeah. once you start thinking a bit more outside of this very conventional structured framework that you have, you start realizing, wow, actually there's probably a lot of things that we can do to modify these risks um, before they show up to the door in the first place. As a population, it seems like, and I got to be careful because uh, cognitive bias and the people I hang out with, there seems to be more of a proactive, like so many more individuals are, well, no, that's just the cards I'm dealt. I went, no, I'm going to do things. I'm going to make effort. I'm not going to see the same, you know, oh, you know, what family history do I have? I'm going to avoid those by exercising. And are we taking like just the evolution of healthcare in general, just we'll speak to North America, we'll speak to Canada from 50 years ago till now, there seems to be more of a broader understanding that some of these things are very preventable and people want to, you know, take their health into their own hands. Heaven forbid. (laughs) Sounds like a great idea. Is that just a trend that we're also on kind of at at a macro level? Oh, I mean, for sure. I mean, the, the things that we used to, you know, here's, here's the difference. The things that we used to think might be beneficial for us, right? Exercise, diet, supplements. We really, ha- it was a bit of a black box, right? Like you didn't, you know, if you were, if you were taking supplements in the 70s and 80s, people were like, well, you know, what's that going to do? We had, you had no idea. You know, now we have... Uh, so just, just making for expensive pee, I've heard yeah, that many times. Totally, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and now, now we have much more rigorous studies looking at, at these um, sort of main pillars of your health everything ranging from your exercise to your sleep, you know, to, to what the focus of your diet should be and what the downstream complications and benefits of that are on sort of a cellular level. Um, and as that data rolls through, people are becoming more and more engaged in their health because 
you know, the... I think everybody is working towards everyone who who is in this field and is interested wants to feel their best through their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s and avoid some of the pitfalls that maybe their parents or their grandparents have already sort of been through. Um, And I think there's lots of data that's sort of telling us that if we if we really set ourselves up for success now, you can do that. So I, I definitely think there's a huge push in that direction. It's certainly, again, that's the view that I take. And certainly as someone, I turned 50 this fall. And when I used to think 50 look, I think we all say that. Well, I thought I had a vision of what 50 looked like. And I, when I look in the mirror, I'm like, no, no, that's no, no, I'm not, no, I'm not acceptable. I'm going to, I'm going to look 50 in a very different way, but taking a very proactive. And I remember 20 years ago, I was weird for the things I did around nutrition where now it's more like, oh, what are you, what are you trying now? And what do you work? It's just, it seems like it's changed just over time. And Again, when you're 20, you can get away with things that maybe at 40 you can't get away with, and at 50 you certainly can't get away with it in a, in a, diff, in a different way. Um, you just said, you know, exercise, diet, supplements, which we'll kind of maybe unpack those. But you said something earlier, and I don't want to skim over it. Just preventative, proactive, but just the biohacking space. Biohacking, one of those words that floats around. Can you give us a definite? Can you define it? I don't know if I could. <laughs> I probably could try. But for someone who lives in this space, and if I'm listening to this episode. And I've heard this term, but I haven't gone down the biohacking rabbit hole, and that is a deep rabbit hole. How would you explain it to somebody hearing it maybe for the first time, or or maybe the fifth time, but now they want to know what it means? I've never been asked that question, but I I think (laughs) what I would probably define it as is reaching a goal of health optimization in the most efficient way possible using um, sometimes conventional, but sometimes alternative therapies. based on the data that we have you know that's okay. that's probably how to define it and and so really you know what what it means when i think about it though is like you have people who are looking for their optimal health right they're trying to reach that um they're taking their health into the, the ones that i've met taking their health really seriously they're taking it into their own hands um and they're really they're willing to experiment and explore alternative avenues um to try and reach that pinnacle for them if someone is new to diet and exercise, is that a form of, can you call that? I'm playing, I've got, I'm going somewhere with this in my own mind, but if I'm exploring my diet for the first time, can that, could that be considered biohacking? If I'm just someone who's never really got serious about nutrition and now I'm trying different foods to see how I feel, see what affects my energy, see if, of course, you know, often, often driven by a weight loss goal typically, uh, but then quickly, Oh geez, I actually feel better. Is could that be considered biohacking, or are we getting into the like the finer strokes? And we'll talk about different supplements. No, no, I, those types of things. no. I, I, I think, I think everybody has this pinnacle of health optimization. That looks very different for a ton of different people, right? And so, a lot of biohacking, as we described, is that sort of exploration, that that trial and error of what works for them, right? So. Okay. You know, if I think if you use diet as a great example, I mean, any diet can be effective. It's what's going to work for you. And the one that is the simplest, the most efficient, the one that you can stick to, um, I would certainly consider in that in that wheelhouse, right? Yeah, it's the old joke. What's the best exercise? I'm like the one that you'll do. <laughs> That's the best exercise. What's the best time of day? The where you can fit it in. <laughs> like once you get beyond that, then you can get into the fine. I've just run into some from friends recently that I know their diet is not awesome, but they're chasing some magic supplement. I'm like, well, I think you're trying to biohack on top of a foundation. I think it's so easy. It's silk and 
sometimes lead you down the magic answer road. And I think that that's a bit risky, but you know, again, I'm not criticizing. It's just, you gotta, there, I feel there is a foundational approach to health and wellness before maybe we go down the, 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 the fine tuning portion, but we, we're all looking for something that's going to make it a little bit easier and faster though. I think broad statement. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, and I, I think there's, when you're talking about the health care space, right? And I felt this way as a physician coming from conventional medicine, transitioning to something that where there's a ton of noise, there's a ton of different options and selections. Like I got decision fatigue just trying to figure out, you know, what works, what works for me, what's going to work for an individual. Like I, I think um, it's easy to fall into that trap of, of hoping for, for a magic pill um, when really the main focus should really be some of those foundational things that you talked about. Appreciate it. So exercise, diet, supplements, sleep. You can't, you know, a joke. You can, there, there, you, you can't throw a stone at a bookstore. I don't know if anyone goes to a bookstore anymore. You can hit the, the, the diet section. You can hit the exercise and sports section. You probably can hit the sleep section now because there's a sleep book coming out every, every couple of weeks now. When you look at those four, four pillars and maybe we can add a couple, do you rank them in terms of like, yeah, you know what? If you're not getting a good night's sleep, don't worry about over-exercising. If your diet's terrible, don't go try and run five miles a day because it actually could put you in a, in a detrimental. Is there a hierarchy of how you look at things when you when you engage with someone and you know from a data perspective, but also from your own experience? Yeah, so <clears throat> it's a great question. The, the hard part is they're all interrelated, okay? So the first thing that I would say is foundationally, if we want to talk lowest hanging fruit, sleep. Yep. Right. So if you're not sleeping well, um, it has tremendous effects on your cortisol levels. It can it can impact the hormones that regulate your um, that regulate your hunger cueing. Right. Regulate your insulin resistance. So, I mean, sleep, if we're talking biohacking, I feel like is the foundational piece to to address for most people, because most people aren't getting enough. But often sleep is going to tie directly to maybe lack of exercise and poor diet. So back to your inter, inter yeah, yeah, the, the interoperability of these pillars, right? <laughs> yeah, and and then you know you look you look next to let's look to exercise. Um, you know, certainly, especially if you're doing some resistance training, it's going to help improve. You know, it helps to stimulate growth hormone and testosterone. It, it helps with your your basal metabolic rate. Um, you know, building muscle is a really critical thing. And then lo and behold, you also sleep better. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, obviously, and all that on top of a balance or a, a solid approach to nutrition. And like you said, it's a nutrition that works for you. There is no magic answer in diet. You got to try things and everybody's different. And, you know, I saw something the other day and they were talking about most diets. It's not what you're adding. It's what you're actually eliminating. And the, the way that the, it was just a little clip. And he said, you know, whether it's vegetarian over here or carnivore over here, lots of times on those diets, you're eliminating all of the process, the junk food, the over, you know, processed oils and things like that. And I appreciated the approach of like, it was less about the magic answer of the magic food, the formula that you, that you stumbled on, but that you're actually just cleaning up the mm -hmm. operation in general. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I think the big takeaways for me going through this process have really been like uh, focusing on protein, right? Like that, that I think as a general rule, most people aren't getting enough on, right? Mm -hmm. Limiting some simple carbohydrates. I feel like that one's like, that one's like an easy, easy layup. But then like, you know, the truth is, is like all of these different diets, carnivore, vegan, keto, 
they all, you know, intermittent fasting, whatever, like they all have their individual benefits and they all have their drawbacks. And so if you're going to sort of be pursuing those things down the pipeline, and that's where I feel like most people start, like we don't need to get into like the elimination of, of seed oils and like, you know, the, the, the micronutrients that you're adding to your food to make sure that, you know, your, your tight calorie counting is, is perfect. These are just broad strokes. And if you can make some very basic changes to some of those broad strokes, coupled with some of some simple changes to like your sleep and perhaps your exercise routine, let's say you do five or 10% improvement in any one of those fields. Well, now you have like between the three of them, you have maybe 15, 30% collectively, and you sort of compound that over time and you're going to see substantial changes, right? And I, I think that's the key is like, yes, there's there's some real individual things that you want you want to address, but really, it, it in order for it to be really effective, you kind of need an integrative play between between multiple of the pillars, right? And for most people, like thinking about the change management and the human cycle, I've, I've for you and you and I've chatted about this. I worked in the health and fitness space, and I very quickly realized it wasn't about calories and carbs and proteins and fats. It was about adherence. It was about the ability to make it practically fit into your life. It was about the change management aspect that often got overlooked to chase an extreme, you know, it's easy to follow an extreme set of guidelines for often a short period of time. And I say easy with an asterisk, but I like what you said. Can you sustain it? Like, you know, what, what, what will that, what, what can you position the body to adapt to over a longer period of time that actually works for your life? Most diets don't speak to that because they give you these extreme parameters, which kind of make it easy at first, but really hard in the long run. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. And the, the other thing that I would say is like, if you can take a longer time horizon, right, where you're not looking at four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, you know, you're looking at a year or two years, all of a sudden, if you fall off the wagon a bit, you can have way more self-compassion about, okay, like, you know, I'm, I'm trending in the right direction. I'm working on a couple of these different things at once. It doesn't need to be quite so black and white, quite so, you know, um, either you're succeeding or you're failing. It's, it's more of a process. You mean like life in general? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad life has a long time horizon. I've, a lot of things have worked out because I've had time to get them figured out. So, you know, some basics, you know, good night sleeps, which are going to be tied to some exercise, uh, stress reduction, which exercise and good diet, which is find out what works for you. Ultimately, though, what I'm hearing, the underpinning of like, we're ultimately trying to manipulate hormonal balance. Like I've, you've used it a lot. You're like, well, sleep because your hormones balance or this because that ultimately are what we're going to and what we're after down the road is fine tuning some of those very micro chemicals that have big impacts on our body. Is that, is that ultimately where that journey takes us to start to optimize things? Yeah, I, I think, you know, when I, when I, okay, so when we think about sort of health optimization, right, um, the things that you care about are the absence of cardiometabolic disease, the absence of neurodegenerative disease, the absence of cancers, just as a baseline. And when we're addressing these simple things, sleep, exercise, diet, right, ultimately we're looking at the what I would sort of speak in two two broad categories. One is um, cardiometabolic metabolism, how you how you churn through your sugars and your lipids and and create energy for your body. Um, and then the other one is hormonal balance. Now that can include cortisol. It can include um, you know your thyroid. It, it obviously it includes your your sex hormones, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone. All of those things play play a critical role and the balance of those um 
over time has profound impacts on your body habitus, how you feel, you know, how your neurotransmitters work. It's really, um, you know, a very cascading effect. And so when we when we talk about these, I think it's sometimes it's it's hard to um, comprehend how much of an impact lifestyle modification can have downstream on these very cellular processes, right? And I think what we're learning through a lot of the science is like the, before we thought ah, maybe there's an effect, and now we know no no. Not only is there an effect, it's probably it's the biggest. Those are the biggest things that you can do to create a healthy cellular body that's therefore going to you know improve improve your um, health health span. You know you, the quality of your life, and then ideally you know the length of your life, your longevity. So. Well, and the quality of that length, right? Yeah, yeah, of course, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We don't. No, nobody wants to be ninety and and not being able to do what they want. The living forever is under the criteria of I can do everything I want while living forever concept. Is this where the also the world of traditional and like you said, very relevant and important and and critical in our society separates to the preventative and the proactive side when we're starting to look at the long term impact of positively influencing our hormonal balances and the way our body functions chemically to me to me that feels where these start to diverge and one starts to really launch out into the future where one is still doing its best job of saving people today <laughs> oh I, I i think that's uh i i think that's bang on really i, I do tyler like the the conventional system like tra- when i transitioned from conventional urgent care to this new space i had no idea what was going to as a person who is actively interested fairly active you know still had no idea what was going to be on the on the other side of that side of that bridge um, and i think conventional medicine is doing its absolute best in terms of treatment um, in terms of trying to put some of these building blocks that we're talking about together but the truth is is like the the new data that's coming around that supports these these lifestyle modifications how quickly and how much that data is is coming through and the impact it's having all of that research takes 10 15 25 years to to distill down to to our you know that you're to your primary caregiver and so there's this explosion of of information and research on health optimization and longevity um that's going to take a long time to reach, you know, the conventional medicine structure. Just by the nature of the, of the, and they're kind of, they're, they're accomplishing two different, they're focusing on two different ends, right? Ultimate, ultimate, ultimately. So as it, as an individual who's in this space, how do you vet? Cause there's always the, uh, the, the bullshit meter, right? Like, Ooh, this sounds too good to like, so your job, cause you know, you're now the trusted advisor who's recommending someone like myself. Cause we, <laughs> you and I've been in this room in this exact situation. Yeah, Tyler, I recommend you should do this because as far as the research that we have available, this is showing to have this positive impact. How much of your role is kind of vetting and and sifting through the chaff, if you will, and we'll kind of getting into the supplements that you're seeing and the supplementation side of this? Because to me, exercise, diet, and sleep, those are foundational. I hope if anyone wants to argue about that, this is not, you know, you can go argue with someone else because they're just forgiven. Those are just givens in my opinion. But the supplement side, how much of for you or how much time and energy do you spend into just vetting the wheat from the chaff? <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of my role is to discern those two things, right? Yeah. Totally. So, and, and the way that you do that structurally is you need like, um, you need a, 
foundation for which to view all of these different things. And that can be technologies, that can be different protocols, that can be supplements, that can be IVs, that can be medications, that can be hormones. Like there's so many different things that are constantly evolving, right? And so I I think the way that you do that most effectively, um, number one is you look at number one is you you actually go through those big double-blind placebo trials, see what you can pull out um, that is unique to the individual. Number two is, you know, you look at some other types of research um, that don't may not have the same level of evidence, um, you know, qualitative studies, longer-term studies on centenarians or, or people who have lived to older than 100 to get a sense of what's been working for them. Um, the next step is really sort of looking at the individual technologies or the supplements, having a clear understanding of the way that they're supposed to be acting in our body's physiology, right? And then applying that, applying all of those different metrics into saying like, okay, like the we think this is what this does and we have some early evidence to support it. We think the the benefit is this. The potential risk should really be pretty minimal if we're if we're looking into it. You make sort of a judgment call on on where you think those things are progressing, and then at the end of it, you have a sit down conversation with your patient and you lay that all out and you say, look, this is what we know, this is what we think is working, and this is what we don't know. And I think in that way, it ends up being much more of a it becomes much more of a conversation than it does like, here's your prescription for, for your medication. See you later. My traditional doctor has rarely asked me my opinion on his prescription recommendations. <laughs> yeah, or rarely included me in that conversation. And that's not a criticism. So I really appreciate the collaborative nature of, you know, everyone's in, in this is that individualization of like, well, what, what's important to me is going to be different than maybe my friend who's maybe the same age and just, you know, has different goals or maybe has a different, you know, history when it comes to health. Or you know exercise and, and all the all the things. So it, it, we've made the audience you kind know, of we've given them a chance to listen to us for twenty nine minutes. Let's start to get into maybe some more of the specifics of the things that you're seeing kind of in the hormonal space or the, like let's 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 geek out a little bit and go down the rabbit hole. Or what are some of the things that you've seen over the last couple of years that you're actually starting to get excited about, whether it be male or female focused or or, or, or broadly that are starting to really show and that you've seen uh, show some traction with patients for sure. So. Um, I think the thing that I am most excited about, okay, we're, we're, let's start fairly conventional and we can kind of, okay. we can reach um, out yeah, further let's, and further. Let's slip. Yeah, right? please. I love it. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> so, so I think in the men's health space, um, I think the value of testosterone in some patients over the age of 40, certainly over the age of 50, um, becomes in my mind becomes a more valuable option. So initially we were worried that testosterone was related to prostate cancer or that testosterone was related to cardiovascular disease. I think as a rule, that's really generally being debunked. Okay. Okay. Um, We know that uh, testosterone is important for maintaining muscle mass, right? And after the age of 50, you know, you start to lose about one to 2% of that. So things that people often come in to, to see us for, you know, men, just look, you know, you're right in the age group. We're like, well, you know, like I'm not recovering as quickly as well. I'm not, I'm not seeing the same gains that I'd like. And if we can help support that today with muscle maintenance and muscle mass, that might prevent sarcopenia, loss of muscle that then results in loss of function in their 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, 
so you know, I, I finished a course that was put on by Harvard, which I thought was exceptional. Um, and I think for a lot of patients, perhaps a subtle titration of that as they get older, I think is a is a great option to help sort of maintain some of those key functions, right? It helps with bone mass, helps with strength, can help a little bit with cognition and, and mood. Um, so I think there's there's lots of upside. And now that we've seen the transition and the evidence to suggest that it doesn't cause prostate cancer and it doesn't cause heart disease, um, you know, I, I, I think if we're talking about that risk-benefit ratio, I think in many men it probably favors benefit. Um, but again, that data set is going to take another 10, 15 years to filter down to like, I think conventional medicine where it's really going to become more of the norm. That's interesting. And, and that, again, I've been through, you know, you guys are also very, uh, it's, it's fantastic to be able to do a blood workup and to do all that and then be able to sit down and have your doctor, in this case, you, for me, walk me through every single number, which then when you start to look at where supplements might play or might not, you're doing it from a more informed position where oftentimes we go get a blood test and you're like, nope, if we don't call you, then everything's fine. There's going, there is part of that next level, which again, a little plug for Eon, that is part of the Eon experience where you get to be a lot more intimate. You're not just going, oh, I'm 50, I should take testosterone. No, there's testing. I just want the audience to hear that, that that's been my experience, that this isn't just a finger in the wind. Uh, I think we should try testosterone. There, there's, a, there's a lot of, and you're involved as the, as the patient, as the participant, every step of the way, which is not always the case when you go to just do your annual medical, right? And they, and they tell you everything's fine, but you have no idea really what that means. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and just sort of one last plug on that. Like the range, the range on testosterone for men is from eight to 35, Okay. So it's very reasonable, you know, if you're an active guy, you're in that upper third, you eat right, you know, your testosterone starts at 26 and then slowly over time drifts down to 10. <clears throat> that might be a very noticeable change for you. But because you're still within that normal yeah, yeah, limit, yeah. right? It, you may not, you, you, you're like, wow, I don't feel great. I'm not recovering. I'm tired all the time. You, because you haven't reached that threshold and it's not a core focus of, of some other f- clinics, you know, they may not, they may not recognize that as, uh, as a functional decline, even though you haven't been like the true threshold of a, of a lower, lower piece. Yeah. So ultimately you want enough data that you can compare it against your own journey, not some, uh, not a universal data set that, that maybe, you know, like you said, is, is, has a very broad, uh, bandwidth. Yeah, for sure. You want to take that very individual approach, right? So. Hmm. Okay. So testosterone. All right. I'm sold on that yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> you and I've already yeah. had this conversation. Yeah, yeah, totally. So uh, that, that's why I, a couple of years ago went and got all my numbers tested. So I know where I sit so I can watch things as things progress into the future. Yeah. And, and, and I think just to your point, I'm not saying that at 50, everybody needs testosterone, but I think yeah. it is valuable to get a one-time test to get an understanding of like where your levels start, you know, so you can, you yeah, can trend so. that over time. And if you notice things change down the future, then you, then you can, you can have some follow up with that. And it's just one lever, you know, here's the other, here's my other sort of piece on this is, um, testosterone is impacted by all those other things we talked about. It's impacted by sleep. Yeah. It's impacted by diet. It's impacted by resistance training, right? And so an, a more um, appropriate treatment program might be like, hey, let's, let's address these other things first, see what happens, see if that, if that moves the needle. And if we're successful, then that's great. And if not, then perhaps you, know, you look at supplementation a different way. 
I appreciate that. And is hormonal treatments for men more of something that's evolving? Because again, I I can't speak to this in any degree of expertise, but for women, it seems the conversation around hormones has been more prevalent where males, it was, you know, your buddy at the gym took testosterone that he got from his other buddy. And there's that side of it. Is it, is it, is it now becoming a little bit more of a conversation in the world of men's health versus, versus women, which it feels like again, as an outsider, clearly uh, it has been more of a conversation for longer. Yeah, I definitely think um, for women, it's been more of a, you know, it's been more of a, uh, it, it, I would actually say for women, it's, it's been, there's been a lot of stigma and a lot of misinformation around hormones as well. So, you know, they had the, the big women's health initiative that essentially said estrogen and, and progestins cause breast cancer. Absolutely no one should take them. And then you had an entire generation of women um, follow up who had to deal with all of the symptoms and the side effect profile of menopause um, who, no matter how severe their symptoms were, um, weren't being properly addressed. So I would say there's tons of stigma that are that is around okay. that that is beginning to change, I think, I think certainly. Um, and so on the women's health side, I mean, I, I actually think the thing that I'm most excited about is the more conventional use of, of estrogen and progesterone as not just a treatment, but in some cases can be a preventative measure um, to sort of improve health outcomes and, and optimization sort of through, again, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So still so similar, you know, from both genders perspective, that there's just a new way of thinking around specifically uh, the male and female kind of sex hormones. Yeah. And, and, and it should be it's, it's nuanced. It's nuanced and it needs to be catered to the individual. But I think it's great to have it as one lever, one option within your toolbox to, to sort of affect change on a positive scale. Right. What's ne- what's next as we stray a little bit farther from the center? <laughs> so, um, one thing that I am a very strong proponent of that's a technology we have here, but I think is also easily accessible for many patients is infrared sauna. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think when we're talking about, so just to back this up, uh, in you know, if you if you hear the Finnish sauna, right? Scandinavia, Finland, in, in particular, has a very strong sauna. Um, sauna history and mm-hmm. see, most of those are, are wet saunas so it's a bit different but what they noticed is is patients in that in that region of the world had a decreased risk of uh, heart attack and stroke and s- some brilliant person somewhere sort of isolated this down that it was it could be related to to the sauna use so the thing that I love about sauna is what sauna does is that high temperature actually activates these things called heat shock proteins. Heat shock proteins then help to stabilize, um, you know, the 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 plaque in your arteries, so it's less likely to crack open and, and create a, a heart attack or a stroke. Interesting. And so, if you actually if if you actually use sauna, you know, it can it can improve your um, it can it can decrease your risk of cardiovascular disease by like fifty two percent if you use it between four and seven times a week, um, and even wow. which which is amazing four seven like, times a week for how much how much how much how much duration that's a massive that's a massive number fifty two percent yeah uh, four to seven times a week what what kind of what kind of duration 
Yeah, I mean, twenty. It realistically, it's between 20 and 30 minutes. That's a sweet spot where your body's getting hot enough before you get cripplingly dehydrated. Um, but I, I think that's... Uh, you, and you can kind of build up the tolerance as you go. But I, I think when patients are looking for... And, and it's got tons of other benefits. Like, you know, the other thing that it helps to do is they, they looked at this in, in endurance athletes. And because it stimulates some of the same things, increases your heart rate, opens up your blood vessels... Um, athletes, either beginner or endurance athletes, actually can extend and improve their capacity to exercise. So if you're just getting into into working out again, you know, sauna is a great way to sort of build up that endurance as you go. Um, tons of benefit for for mood and and also sleep. So I, I think it's like I think it's a technology that that is beginning to come more into play and also has has tremendous benefit. And you specifically called out infrared sauna versus wet sauna versus dry sauna. I've done a lot of, I have an infrared in my house. So I'm about 10 years ago. I think it's the single best investment I've made in anything health related. And I've tried a ton of stuff and you just feel awesome. Like you can just check that box and it's, that it's worth it for that alone. Um, but what's the difference or is there a benefit specifically with inf- infrared over the other two, like the, the, the steam sauna or the dry sauna? Yeah, I mean, it, it's tricky because this is a perfect example of where we're extrapolating, right? So, so okay. we know gotcha. that we know that in Finnish saunas or wet saunas, and, and they run hot, right? Um, I think the infrared saunas have some benefits in the sense that, like, you know, you have three different wavelengths of light, and um, you know, your your core temperature heats up fairly quickly, right? Um, and so we're extrapolating that to to infrared saunas and now there's some evidence that's beginning to pour out that they're that they are as effective as finished saunas as long as they're at a high enough heat um but i i think really the 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 major benefits and at least the initial evidence was done in like the wet saunas but i mean who can wet saunas are like they're they're hard to maintain they're hard to get access to an infrared sauna was it was like twenty two hundred bucks. I put it together in my house. I plugged it into a normal wall socket, and it's worked successfully for ten years with zero maintenance. So they're like, just, let's just talk about back to your point. Is it accessible? Can you do it? Will you use it? And I put it upstairs, and I throw up the. Com- There's a glass door in front, so I put on the computer. I watch documentaries. It's 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 many birds with one stone, but the accessibility and the cost bearer was pretty low. And literally, you plug it into the wall. Right, and and you know, you're talking about biohacking, right? Like it's such an efficient way to relax, take your cortisol levels down, helps with sleep. Um, so so I think it's just it's just one of the technologies that we have within the facility, but one that I think um, has definitely has a very robust evidence set and something that people should consider i like to what you said they're also accessible like you can find them around town you can find them in different places you can buy one i think costco sells them so i also love that we can talk about things that are accessible to people because sometimes this stuff can feel like oh well yeah but i can't afford it or i don't know where to find that and something like infrared is or sauna in general is relatively accessible you can get a membership at the y and you can have access to a sauna Yeah. Okay. Cool. Nice. I love that. I love it. Yeah. I'm, I have a bias towards this one. So I'm glad you, I'm going to love that you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> what, 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 what else is on the, the, the audience is taking notes now. We're getting, we're getting I, into I the, we're getting I'm, into I'm the trying, right I'm trying to it. figure out like, what is the level of down <laughs> the next? road? I want to, I want to take this. Um, okay. okay. So, so the, the next thing <laughs> that, that I'm, that I'm really very excited about uh, is we're going to be bringing in, um, uh, we, you know, we're going to have a great gut health program that's just that's just getting you know really um, created right now. That's going to focus on 
improving your gut microbiome, which nice. through the combination of, of testing, followed by supplements, followed by sort of antibiotics to kill some of the bad bacteria. Um, and I think that's going to have like a really profound effect on lots of different patients as they, you know, who, who kind of struggle. This is a perfect example of like, if you if you struggle with like bloating or constipation or diarrhea, you go to your family physician and they're always like, well, you know, you probably have IBS, right? Which is a very classic same irritable bowel yeah. syndrome, which is just like a sort of a catch-all black box for... Um, we don't really know what's going on with your with your you know small and large intestine, right? And what we now know is that there's tons of um, sort of bacteria that can grow in the small intestine that's really not supposed to be there. That then c- creates gas as a byproduct, meaning you don't absorb your nutrients as well. And then on top of that, you get tons of bloating and, and constipation. And if we can kill that bacteria and reset that, um, you know, it, it just helps with with absorption. It helps to improve like all of these other symptoms. And I I think there's going to be there's a huge population just because of our Western diet and what what everybody's eating that I think is going to see a lot of that could see a lot of benefit from that. Um, so I'm so I'm and that's kind of a nice blend between conventional and more sort of naturopathic medicine where they do these tests and and the combination being able to combine those two I think is going to be pretty powerful. Powerful. That's exciting. Well, when you and I first met, that was part of my journey. Um, so my wife would probably send you a thank you letter for the for the gas and bloating portion of the of the study that was now uh, better than it's ever been. And uh, we did some of that testing initially, and I've always had kind of pseudo stomach issues, quote unquote. That, oh, you have an ulcer. Oh, you don't. You have this. And I did a very very simple thirty day treatment with you, and all like my my digestion has been better since. And that was two years ago. <laughs> Just again, not to insert myself into these stories, but I've had some of these experiences and it was very positive and it was very simple. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of these things sort of blend, right? Like you need to address your nutrition. Perhaps there's a couple supplements you've got to take. Um, Just eradicating the bacteria, like with so many things, isn't enough because if you don't make any changes, those bacteria slowly grow back. Right. And so it's trying to sort of set things up for success that way. Um, and then perhaps the last thing, which is almost too early, but I'll, I'll just say it on this podcast anyways. Okay. Um, I love it. I love it. You know, we're, we're creating a sublingual, so under the tongue ketamine program um, that is going to be sort of an alternative therapy for anxiety and depression. Okay. So um, I don't know how deep down this rabbit hole we want to go, but. Essentially, it, oh it, I, well, you're you're you're. you're I'm a, anyone who knows me. I'm a huge proponent of the 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 guided and proper use of psychedelics for personal development, and you know, five years of talk therapy in ten minutes kind of mindset. That's an oversimplification, but Lisa and I have talked about this at at length. So you're 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 pulling at a string for me that I think is an area that I love to. Um, I love to normalize for people so it gets it out of like, oh, isn't that weird drugs? It's like, well, no, actually, there's a lot of research, ketamine being one, in the medical community that's showing some real benefits for people to get through some mental health challenges. So please feel free to unpack this one as much as you like. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, so you know, we use ketamine all the time um, in the emergency department for procedural sedation, okay? So at high levels, what, what ketamine does is it's used as a deep sedative um, so we can you know, pull on somebody's wrist and fix their broken wrist or something of that style. Okay. At lower levels, you know, you actually, you know, ketamine patients actually don't have that same level of, um, you don't get that same level of dissociation where you, you don't know what's going on. You're sort of lulled into, into this middle ground where 
you're not you're not fully out of it, but you're able to look at things in a slightly different perspective. Okay, um, and so when we're ta- let's use anxiety and depression because those are really the first things that we're going to be treating. Um, ketamine can help. So classic medications, SSRIs, SNRIs, those those help to sort of. Um, uh, support those neurotransmitter productions, okay? But it doesn't address the the pathways that are sort of very rigidly constructed. So, so how one cell, one neuro, neural cell in your brain, talks to another, creates a form of connection. And the more times you have that connection, the harder it is to break, okay? Which is why the more times that you have a, um, uh, you know, you, you have a thought pattern, right? Oh, I, I, I feel depressed, I can't do it. It's really hard to get out of that rut. And one of the interesting benefits of ketamine specifically is it, act, it, you know, it, it acts on, on a different type of transmitter um, called glutamate that helps to create different pathways. And so with a short course of that, you can start um, you know, you can start improving, you know, as, as you work on some of these different pathways, you can actually get some pretty substantial benefit um, for both anxiety and depression over time because your brain starts altering how it's talking to itself. Now, we couple... That's a, that's yeah, a great yeah. description. Oh, it's, 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 it's going to be... And, and when you couple that with some of the other things that we're talking about that we know can improve it, like exercise, like um, Newcom, like infrared sauna... You now have this sort of integrative approach to to mental health that we just haven't seen before. I really love and thank you for bringing it's 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 easier sometimes a trap to get camping out on the physical and go oh we got hormone therapies we got exercise and sleep but as whole people our our brains and how we feel and how we interact and how we communicate internally with ourselves that inner voice that is so much about health if you want to put it underneath that but sometimes it's it's easy to slip into like, well, I'll just eat right and exercise. And, but the mental health side of it, which can also, if you're in a place of depression, exercise is tough, mm-hmm. like to get that momentum and to make those right food choices. Like it is part of that whole person model that sometimes the triage side of medicine is, well, you know, if my arm's broken, I want the triage and I want it dealt with. But if my arm's broken because I was in a debate, cause I was depressed and fell down the stairs, what am I dealing with to go all the way back? That was a weird story I just created there, but uh, I really appreciate looking at it as a whole unit, which is a lot more complex and takes a lot, it requires a lot more ownership by the team you're working with, but also for you as an individual. It, it, it feels like a little bit more work, but it's quote unquote worth it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think, look, I, I think there's lots of different ways to access these things. I, I think sometimes the hardest barrier is let's say you're suffering from depression and you're interested in some of these alternative therapies, right? Well, you might go to a nutritionist, you might go to a personal trainer, you might go to a naturopathic doctor, you might go to your own physician. Um, but it's a lot of work and it's a lot of time to kind of create and curate a program for you. And, and, and so one of the things that I'm um, excited about, not just on the mental health side, but you know, for all the different programs we offer is like, having a space where you can come in and have an integrative evidence-informed approach to these to these therapies i think is going to provide a lot of benefit because then you can actually just focus on doing the work Hmm. having that having that team having that quote-unquote pit crew that's got your best interest in mind and you know and, and this is a tough one but um 
access. This often feels cost prohibitive for people. They're like, oh, that's great. Oh, that's private healthcare. That's, oh, I don't have the money for that. Or maybe some people don't feel they should have to pay for it. And that's another psychology, just, you know, back to the, our touch at the beginning of, you know, this amazing Canadian, this amazing Canadian medical system we have that's also creates a mindset of like, well, it's just there for me. I shouldn't have to pay any thoughts around that. And we're getting into now the, the, the economics and then the reality around that. But it feels like a factor where the people that can get access get these benefits, but then there's a whole portion of the population that it might be 10 years from now before these things even start to circulate in the mainstream. Totally. So two thoughts on that. Number one is I think everybody should have access to this. I, I feel like it's the, if you look at the numbers of dollars and cents that's prevented on the reactive care side, if we shifted even a portion of that over to the preventative care model, um, you could see tremendous outcomes that would not be cost prohibitive that I think would save the taxpayers billions and billions of dollars. So I, I think in, a, in, in an ideal world, all of this would be, would be covered. You know, the, the second thing that I would say, and I'll use, I'll use ketamine as a good example, is like, you're totally right. IV or IM ketamine, so IV or in the muscle ketamine, um, requires lots of, it requires a psychiatrist, requires anesthesiologist, it requires a, um, you know, a, a deep accreditation process within, within the healthcare community. And so our goal is to, as a good example, if you place it under the tongue, you're not necessarily, and you, you use it specifically for anxiety and depression, we don't do psychotherapy because then that sort of triggers these other accreditation things. Um, you know, we, we think we can get a lot of benefit for that at a, at a price point that we think could, you know, could be substantially more reasonable for patients. And so as a perfect example, right, like if we wanted to be very hard-lined about this, yeah, you'd get the finished sauna. Right, you get the you get the wet sauna that requires way more way more maintenance because that's where the true evidence is. But if you can get 90 percent of the benefit um, at a cost structure that's more reasonable to an individual, right? You you're, you know, and you couple that again with a, with a series of other things, I think you can see tremendous results. And if patients are strong advocates for their care, either within our facility or otherwise, I do think that some of those barriers to to treatments are are coming down from a price point perspective. I, I appreciate it. Like anything, as it becomes, as there's more volume, there's usually more accessibility. There's usually a, redu a reduction in cost. What what advice would you give an individual who uh, we all know we all know Doctor Internet and we go on there and we research things. We go down rabbit holes and you know do your own research. Well, everything is you can you can research one point and then the counterpoint uh, with the same amount of data on online. If I'm an individual and I'm going out there and I'm curious and I just want to learn and I'm like. What's the, would you give any filters or any like, ah, oh, you know what, like just put this set of filters on before you go and start reading all the things that you might find online. Oh man. Because the risk of empowering <laughs> individuals to find their own, to, to do their own research and get curious and get excited about stuff. You know, you spend a lot of your time, as you said, weeding through the crap to find something of value as individuals who want to be empowered. Oh, it's a messy, messy pit of <laughs> the space out there to learn from when you're doing self-guided research on the internet. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, the, the first thing that I would say is before you start diving into supplements and longevity molecules and, and hormones, um, the, the, core, the core pillars, your diet, exercise, and sleep are far and away the most critical. Okay, So if you don't have that foundation set, all of the other things that you're going to be trying to do 
are, that you're going to try to do are, are all going to be for naught because those those easily carry the heaviest the heaviest lift. Okay. The next thing that, the next thing that I would say is like it doesn't. The, and I'll come back to diet because I think it's a great example. Exercise is a great example. It doesn't matter so much what you're doing or how you're doing as long as you're doing something right as long as you have a little bit of restriction within your diet as long as you're doing some resistance training which i think is is key you know in in your exercise routine um as long as you're shooting to get better sleep um that's where the that's where the biggest gains are made and then if you want to get a bit more granular i would say that like every time you do something you pick something within that within that space you should have an understanding of what its benefits are okay and then also, what are its drawbacks? And if you understand those two things, and you don't just sort of—I think it's easy to get sort of shiny object and jump jump around a lot. But if you have a if you have a clear understanding of what the benefits and what the risks are, then you can kind of um, create some different ways to sort of shore up the downsides by really and really maximize maximize the benefits. I really appreciate that. I, you, you just reminded me of something twenty years ago or fifteen years ago. I did. I, remember when the Bosu ball came out, the half ball? <laughs> yeah, totally. uh, Peter Twist, who was who was a strength coach for the Vancouver Canucks, he was a big proponent of that. I think he was actually one of the guys that helped create it. Anyways, we were doing a seminar, and he talked about standing on a full size exercise ball, and he said, "Hey, I work with athletes. Is there benefits? Absolutely. It's core and it's strength, and it's impressive. And it looks cool in the gym. But he goes, the risk of hurting yourself and injuring yourself as a professional athlete." It's not worth it. So we don't do that exercise. <laughs> He's like, look at everything with that lens and you'll probably be okay in the gym. And I just always remembered and you just, you, you just triggered it for me. I haven't thought about that in probably 15 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, you know, the goal of health right, risk reward, risk totally, reward. Yeah. Yeah. It's risk reward, you know, try and do your best to avoid injury. And then the other thing that I think, which is perhaps even more common in the, in the, in the group that I see is like, it's not necessarily hurting yourself physically. It's hurting yourself emotionally. You fall off the bandwagon. You fall off. You fall off your diet. You fall off your exercise routine. It's so easy to be so negative because everybody who's giving you this information is like, you know, like it, they're they're all specimens. Like I don't know where they get these these Instagrammers or like the you know the Google stars, but it's like that's that's not real life. So <laughs> the more that you can, the more that you can have like a little bit of self compassion and you know work things into your life that are actually going to have some long term sustainable effects, the far better your, your lifestyle is going to be. Uh, myth busting with uh, Dr. Bastian, the internet is not real life folks. Inter- Instagram is not real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you yeah. see these individuals as a guy, just like they're shredded and they're, and they're huge. And they're, you're like, like, unfortunately I've spent enough time in the gym. I know how a lot of those guys get that way and it's not taking the off the shelf supplementation we're talking about or the product <laughs> yeah, that they're pitching yeah. to you on Instagram. But anyways, totally. that's another, uh, that's another, and, we can do a whole myth busting episode just on, you know, you and I maybe yeah, once a week we can go online, find something and myth bust it. Yeah. And, and just want to plug here. That's also the not, not the kind of testosterone therapy we're offering. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. I, yeah, I think it's good to quantify that. Yes. Yeah. I've recently yeah, yeah. watched the Arnold, the Ar- the Arnold documentary, and I recently watched the um, uh, the American Gladiators documentary on Netflix. I knew I knew a guy who was an American Gladiator, and they're just talking about the drug abuse and the steroids they were all taking, and just that era of these massive individuals like WWF and all these things, and all these individuals that I grew up as like these were our role models. These guys were all doing heavy amounts of illegal steroids at the time. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and it painted right? a very, uh, very, very, very toxic picture of what uh, what alpha masculinity looks like from the testosterone perspective alone. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Not to make this about uh, what movies I watched when I was a kid, but um, Dr. Bash, <laughs> I really appreciate really the balanced approach that you put forward today. I'd love that you brought in like the whole human. Like it's great to talk about the physical aspects, but let's bring in the mental health side. And I really, that's at least has hinted to me that you guys were doing some work and potentially getting involved in the ketamine space and just just being able to round out your offering. Uh, how long has Eon been around? Let's do a quick little plug. I'm a big fan of you guys, so let's let's make sure we get that in here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, Eon really opened at the at the beginning of COVID, and then I came on as the medical director about two years ago. Um, and in that time, so you know, predating that, Lisa did an amazing job of of setting up you know the naturopathic care, the IV lounge, the technologies that we've we've alluded to. And then in the last two years, it's really been all about how do we create sort of integrative, accessible programs that we think sort of hit on some of those mainstays. And so we've created a men's health program, a women's health program, a, you know, an optimization slash weight loss program, um, and then a recovery program, which is, you know, for patients who are feeling burnt out. Um, And then... Now we've just launched like our our gut health program, which I think is going to be great. Um, we're looking at the we're we're about to sort of soft soft launch some of our our ketamine pieces, and then we're also looking into sort of a, a more comprehensive cardiovascular disease prevention program. So those are kind of the things Fantastic. that are coming down the pipeline. Yeah, and that's yeah that that's fantastic. Who's your is are you typically? Does this cater typically a little bit older individuals? Is there a broad range of like you know who who shows up and and who's who's getting serious about this? Even just from a from a demographics perspective. Yeah, that's a great question. I I feel like you know when we when we started, I thought I thought it was going to be all sort of sixties and seventy year olds who are like, look, I'm, I I want to make sure I get optimized today. And frankly, like yeah. there's a ton of benefit for those patients, but really it, it ranges anywhere from. Uh, early mid thirties, I'd say 30, you know, early mid thirties where patients, you know, especially women, um, if, you know, if they're going through early perimenopause, maybe they're seeing some changes that they, they don't like, or they're trying to get back to an active, active routine. Um, and that, and then really it's, that ranges from there all the way up to sort of, um, pay, you know, men who are beginning to see some of those, some of those health changes who are looking for a reboot, you know, let's say anywhere from 40 to 55. Um, and then women, especially as they're entering into menopause, they need some more hormonal support. And at the same time, they're looking for some of these other follow-up care, um, sort of integrative approach mechanisms. It excites me just simply to think about those, that broad age range, all being very proactive with their health. Like that to me is a very optimistic kind of look at things that it's like, you're not waiting until things are starting to slide to go, no, no, I'm going to get ahead of it. I want to, you know, maybe things aren't exactly where I want and that's not acceptable. I'm going to be proactive in owning my own health journey. And I, I like selfish personally, I really love that. Yeah, me too. There, there, it's been such a wonderful patient population to work with because they're they're excited about their health they're excited about about what we're offering um and they're they're motivated and engaged in in making change and and that's like that's exactly the kind of healthcare people that you want to be working with right yeah (laughs) it must be it must be there must be a high degree of reward uh, for you as an individual as someone i've you know i've done personal training in the past and nutrition coaching and to see someone transform like they don't you know it's not losing 10 pounds. It's gaining confidence. It's not, you know, it's changing your life. It's, you know, so many things that are, it could be, it can be very, very rewarding when you see people, uh, have those benefits and how it impacts their overall life. You know, it's never just losing five pounds. It's 
I feel better in my clothes. I feel good. I can be more active. Like it's all the things that come. I'm just picking weight loss as, as sometimes it's often the goal, but it's all the other benefits that really make it worthwhile in that journey. It's fun to support people on that. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's the reason I entered into medicine. <laughs> so to be able to see that on the, on the, on the tail end of this whole thing has been like, <laughs> nice. Right yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been just a, the most rewarding thing I can do. So yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Very, very cool. And you're never going to run out of things to learn. That's for sure. So it lends well to the, to the ever curious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, yeah. So it, it's been in, in a lot of ways, it's really been a dream job for me. Oh, that's, a, that, that's, that's amazing. There's a mic drop right there. Well, obviously <laughs> Eon, Eon Future Health, if someone wants to get a, get a, get a hold of you. Um, if, if someone wants to reach out to you directly, do you, do you put it out there into the world or should they just reach out to Eon? What's the best way you know, I, I love, I hope this podcast inspires people to one, at least be a little more curious about their own health. And secondly, to reach out to you guys, what's the best way for someone to get a hold of you? Is it just to, uh, to, uh, reach out to the clinic? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think the first thing we have a pretty strong Instagram following. So if you follow Eon future health, um, A E O N on, on Instagram, that's great. Um, you know, if you reach out to the clinic, we, we always have sort of an introductory call, you know, a sit down conversation with one of our physicians. So before you have to actually commit to anything, you can learn a lot more about what our process is. Um, and then, uh, and then of course you can, you can reach me directly at Dr. Bastian MD, which is my Instagram handle. Yeah. Ah, nice. Fantastic. All right. Well, th- thank you for, thanks for the time. Thanks for the conversation. I love the work you do. You've had a positive impact on me personally. And I was really excited to share that with my audience and just give more people a chance to, you know, see that there's other ways out there to be proactive with your own health. So thanks. Thanks for a fabulous conversation and uh, keep up the good work. I love it. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been great. 